Today's a significant moment in the church year. The majority of Lent is behind us. Thank goodness. And as we look ahead to Holy Week, a dramatic and jarring shift takes place. And indeed, just within the first few minutes of our service. The acclamation, Hosanna, today will become an angry, bloodthirsty shout by Friday. God save us. The meaning of the word Hosanna becomes God damn him. Christ be blessed becomes Christ be cursed. Because as the law clearly states, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Palm branches will become the rough wood of a Roman cross. The poignant and dramatic juxtaposition of triumphal entry and crucifixion in the readings today seeks to prepare us to live out the holy week ahead and hopefully the entirety of our lives in the shadow of the cross of Christ. Theologian John Stott said it well in his book, The Cross of Christ. From Jesus' youth, indeed even from his birth, the cross cast its long and ominous shadow. Dying on the cross was central to his mission. The church has always recognized this and lived in its long shadow as well. You know, it's entirely possible to have ethics or moralism or religion without a cross, but you cannot have a crossless Christianity. As Christians, we follow a crucified and risen Lord. That's not to minimize the immense glory and significance of the resurrection. We'll get there. But it is a reminder that an empty tomb only has saving significance to the extent that from it a once really dead man emerged. So at its core, ours is a cruciform or cross-shaped faith because ours is a cross-shaped God. And also why the church, since the end of the first century, has made the sign of the cross on their body. So closely it identifies us. And as we prepare our souls for Easter, we do well to understand that the heights of our celebration of the glory of the resurrection will only be as profound as our reflections on the depth of the humility of the cross and what that means for us practically. So I'd like to look at the example given by our older brother in the faith, St. Paul, in his reflections on the cross that we read today in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. This is one of, if not the, richest of Christological passages in the Bible. The beautiful prose of verses 6 through 11 alone has inspired more articles and devotionals, monographs, books, and debates 
than most people would ever have the desire or capacity to read. It's believed by many historians and theologians that these verses actually comprise one of the church's earliest hymns. In just three sentences, it traces Jesus' preexistence, incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. In other words, it covers a lot of theological ground. Because of that, it's too often read in isolation from its context, as if Paul were writing the letter to the Philippian churches when in mid-quill stroke he decided that they needed a list of facts to help them study for an upcoming theology exam. Rather, this section about Christ fits perfectly into the flow of the whole letter. He's using the truth about Jesus and the humility of the cross to make a transformative point in the lives of his readers, both both then and now. Paul writes this to instruct and encourage the Philippians, and by extension us, to willfully set aside ambition and self-interest, and in humility count others as more significant than ourselves as Christ himself did. Obviously, this is much easier said than done. But that's the nature of the shadow cast by the cross of Christ. If you have a Bible, look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, because it's the whole point of Paul's writing in this section. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word interests here is super interesting because in Greek, it's a reflexive pronoun, a kind of blank. It's totally open-ended, like a fill-in-the-blank. All that's actually specified is your own blank or the other's blank. So it could read, let each of you look not only to your own finances or your own property or your own family or your own comfort or your own reputation or your own education or your own success or your own happiness. In other words, verse 4 is another way of saying very practically love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is, make the flourishing of others a primary focus of your interest and strategy and work. Find your joy in making others joyful. Our brains were made to run on joy like a car runs on gasoline. And our brains derive joy from our strongest relational attachments, making fertile soil for growing our character and developing our identity in Christ. What this means is that who we love and who loves us forms our character more than any other thing in our lives. And character formation is the central task of the church. This is why in the kingdom of God, loving relationships are everything. And loving relationships are demanding. 
One of the keys to this radical way of loving is in the second half of verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The significance here is not what others are. It's what you count others to be. And the focus isn't on any skill or trait or looks or status or any other perceived external value. The focus is simply, will you count them as worthy of your love and help and encouragement and occasionally correction? Not are they worthy, but will you count them as worthy? Will I serve my sister? Will I take thought not just for my interests, but for hers, too? In other words, the self-centeredness that considers only your own rights, plans, and interests must be obliterated and replaced by an infinitely broader outlook that necessarily includes the interests of your neighbor. I genuinely never thought that I would be quoting Russell Brand to make my point in a sermon even though I do find him to be generally astute and an occasionally profound cultural observer. I got an email yesterday from an audible, for an Audible original done by him called Revelation, and the teaser quote from him enticed me to download it and put it in my queue. It said, this is not a self-help audio because, frankly, helping the self is the problem. Reaching beyond the self may be the solution. I have a sense that he might be moving towards something that St. Paul would resonate with. Now the words in this passage, but also to the interests of others, tell us that we shouldn't neglect or ignore our own interests, but that the interests of others must always factor into our concerns and rise to them. What he's calling for is a revolutionary Christian worldview so wide that it involves itself in seeking the flourishing of others with the same intensity that we commit to our own. I'm not there. I will just confess that to you right now. And where does that other orientation come from? Verse 3, and this may be why I have so much trouble with this, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It comes from humility, literally lowliness. This diametrically opposes our current cultural entitlement mantra, you owe me. And why? Why are Christians to walk through life feeling, feeling a humble sense that we owe service to others rather than them owing us? The answer is, that's how Christ loved us. John 13, 34, a passage that we'll be looking at on Thursday for Monday Thursday, says a new commandment that I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. If you ask most people what he's talking about, they'd say, well, he died for us. That's what we should, we should do. But how had he loved them? 
He had just gotten up from serving them, washing their feet. This is a stunning and beautiful picture of how Christ, in humility, took up a towel and served those to whom he owed nothing. He then went on from there to die for us and forgive us and accept us and justify us and give us eternal life and make us heirs of the world when he owes us nothing. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so deserving. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That's why we say the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. He treats us as infinitely worthy when we simply aren't. He counts us as greater than himself. Who is greater, he asked in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven: One who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. That's where our humility comes from, or should. Christians are stunned into lowliness by grace. Freely we have been served, and so freely we serve. The crucial relational mark of the culture of the capital C church in general and our lowercase church C church in particular should be Philippians 2.4. Let each of you not only look to his own interests but also to the interests of others. This is the mind or mindset of Christ that we must have in our life together. So with that as preamble, Let's take a very brief look, I, I promise, at the hymn itself, how Jesus fleshed out this mindset. Because he wasn't just thinking about it. He actually did something about it. We only have time for a glance, but later you can read this chapter slowly with verse 4 in mind and see how central it is to Paul's purpose in the way he illustrates the example of Jesus in verses 5 through 9. Have this mind in, among yourselves. What mind? The mind of verse 4. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, there's that word again, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, which is the practical outflow of looking to the interests of others. 
being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, laying down all his legitimate entitlements by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because we naturally struggle so greatly with humility and self-denial and serving those who are hard to serve, we're given this picture of Christ as a gift. This is what he did for us. He is the exemplar, the gold standard of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what he did when he came to endure the cross. That is such good news, but there's more. Verses 9 through 11 tell us that he was gloriously exalted precisely for this self-emptying servanthood. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Verses 5 through 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this will be true for you and me as well, this exaltation, because Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humble, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He's literally living proof of that. May this be said of us and of our church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.